put out your porch light, draw your curtains tight, and get ready for another night of Kentucky Deceased. jump into this episode, I wanted to drop in with a little note. This episode is very unique because of the many different events that had to take place since the 1960s in order for it to occur. The first of these is the senior project of one Fred Gooding, who worked very diligently on creating this program to begin with. The second is the sharing and distribution of this radio show by Passport Radio when it was still an AM station around 2013. They were presented with this episode and they chose to run with it as their Halloween special, accompanied by the original War of the Worlds broadcast, which honestly, I wish I was here for this special treat at the time because that sounds truly amazing. Additionally, we have to thank Joe Carter for bringing both Fred Gooding's original recording as well as the Passport Radio production intro and outro to our museum and to our attention. Without Joe, we would not have this episode you're going to listen to, and we're really grateful that he took his time and energy to bring it down to us. Without further ado, I'm going to transition over to myself and Joe having a little conversation before we get into this episode itself. Thank you so much for your time, and we hope you enjoy. My name is Eleanor Haskin, and I'm here with... My name is Joe Carter. Welcome, Joe. Thank you so much for joining us here at the Capital City Museum, and I really appreciate you coming in. A quick note for our listeners, which Joe has gotten to experience a little bit, is that we are also joined by the museum's grandfather clock, which will probably go off during our chat, so don't feel nervous if you hear uh, an odd noise in the background that's fine (laughs) (laughs) so joe can you tell us a little bit about yourself yes ma'am uh i'm from frankfurt uh lived in frankfurt all my life consider frankfurt home i actually technically live in woodford county but it's northern woodford county but frankfurt is my home um Where did you, what is, where did you go to school? That's, I think, a good Frankfurt question. I actually did go to Woodford County High School. Aha! (laughs) But still, Frankfurt's home. Yes, ma'am. I'm, I'm, uh, from where I live, I'm probably four miles from Frankfurt and about 12 miles from Versailles. But you still had to commute all the way down to Versailles to go to school? Yes, (laughs) ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Got to ride that bus every day. (laughs) Oh, geez, Louise. So, but you've stayed here even after high school. Did you go away to college and come back? Can you tell us a little bit about? No, ma'am. I I stayed in the area. Uh, After I got out of high school, I ended up, I got into law enforcement. And I actually started out uh, dispatching down here in Frankfurt. And uh, the opportunity came for me to go back to Woodford County, which I did. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ended up, uh, was there for about 35 years of service mm-hmm. and uh, just recently uh, a few years ago retired out of law enforcement so I'm kind of semi-retired now and just enjoying 
doing what I want to do. <laughs> so semi-retired, what's the semi part of semi-retired? I do still work for the, the county government, but just on a part-time basis. That's got to be nice to have some extra free time. It is very nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, so far we've talked about the more mundane side of life, but the audience, you all listening, are about to enjoy a very special radio broadcast. What is, let's actually start with the beginning do you, can you tell us a little bit about where you found this broadcast, where it came from? I'm not really sure when I acquired it or how I acquired it. And I say that because I collect old-time radio broadcast. And at some point, I'm going to guess within the past five years, give or take possibly, I came across this and was really fascinated by it uh, because it concerns a story that includes Frankfort and Franklin County. Of course, it's um, done in 1960 by a gentleman. His name was Fred Gooding, and he did this from what I can recall from my notes. Uh, this was done in 1960 as his senior project. And for a broadcast that's 70 years old, it's in pristine condition. And when I heard it, uh, I acquired it, and it's just been in my collection ever since. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about it? I know we're kind of being a little uh, withholding on details, yes. but can you give people a little teaser or a few sentence description of what they're about to listen to? It's the Central Kentucky slash Franklin, Franklin County version of War of the Worlds. And it is an amazing story. The uh, recording is in excellent shape and it's become one of my favorite Halloween traditional go-to listen-to stories. It's one I never get tired of listening to. So I'm I'm lucky enough to have seen the original War of the Worlds movie, not the remake, as well as heard the original radio broadcast. But I hesitate to say this. I'm sure some people haven't. Can you, can you describe it? Are you up for the task of describing it? <laughs> yes, it's pretty much uh, it from the music in the broadcast and i believe the original version took place in the 1940s and so you will hear period music and as back in those days they would interrupt to bring news broadcast breaking news and that does take place in this little story and it just each time they break in it's a little more serious and finally you realize this is not good for Central Kentucky. <laughs> and um, where this one takes place here, the original War of the Worlds took place up in the eastern uh, seaboard. And it's kind of like we were talking. If something happens, there's an explosion in Fremont, New Jersey. You kind of feel bad for those people up there, but you really don't think a lot about it. But when you're in Switzer and something explodes and you can feel it in Covington, that's when I would be concerned myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I think a lot of people can relate to that. You know, if it's happening in my hometown, oh my gosh. Yes. But, I, you know, when I think of the history of the world, War of the Worlds broadcast too, what I always think of is something my dad talked about, which is how the first broadcast did not make it clear that it was a radio play. Is that right? Yes, ma'am. That is correct. <laughs> so there was some panic in the streets, I feel like. Yes, yes. That <laughs> did create quite a stare. Orson Welles did a fantastic job of catching the nation's attention, whether that was his intention or not. <laughs> I don't know if he was wanting to provide good entertainment 
or scare everybody. I think he did a little bit of both with that broadcast. <laughs> so, you know, before we start listening, I guess we both probably want to make it clear to everyone that this is a recording. It is not live, uh, which you probably know listening to this podcast in general, you're not listening to the radio, but we just, just in case <laughs> don't this, run a, <laughs> this is, this is just a drill. This is not happening in real life. <laughs> I think that is a perfect way to segue into it. Awesome. Do you have anything you want to add that we didn't talk about? No, uh, I think we did cover everything other than, uh, again, I just want to, uh, uh, say a thank you to Mr. Gooding. If, if he's, uh, can hear this because I, this is something that was created in 1960 and for us in, in 2021 to be able to enjoy this show mm-hmm. all these years later, I think that says something to his efforts and his work because again, it is a fantastic presentation. That is very lovely. I love that. Thank you, Joe. Yes, ma'am. Oh, yeah, and we should, I, before I stop recording, mm-hmm. thank you very much, Joe. I really appreciate your time. I'm very glad that you had me down, and uh, it's, it was my pleasure. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it is time to gather around your radio and turn it up loud so you can hear a great radio story. Now, we've known about this for only about three weeks here at the radio station because Fred Gooding, who was a senior at UK back in 1960, created this wonderful show as his senior project at UK. And he came by the station about three weeks ago and played it for us, and we went totally crazy. We thought it was just the coolest thing ever, and we hope that you enjoy it because it's real theater of the mind and fun radio and uh it's a great thing to play on halloween so turn it up and enjoy it martian invasion of central kentucky for the next 24 hours not much change in temperature a slight atmospheric disturbance of undetermined origin is reported over nova scotia causing a low pressure area to move down rather rapidly over the northeastern states to kentucky bringing a forecast of rain accompanied by winds of light gale force the high to reach 52 This is the voice of the Bluegrass, WRWL Lexington. Pleasant good evening to you, ladies and gentlemen. From our studios in the Hotel Lafayette in Lexington, this is Forrest Wayne, with some recorded music at our disposal, which we hope meets with your approval. That's I'll Be Around, our theme, and needless to say, that's quite apropos in as much as we will be around for the next hour or so. Initial honors this evening go to the Ray Anthony Orchestra. Here's the Ray Anthony crew with our opener, Birth of the Blues.
Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Associated Press. At 20 minutes before 8 Eastern Standard Time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the University of Kentucky confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ray Anthony. Anthony Orchestra and our opener tonight, Birth of the Blues. It's five minutes past eight o'clock here in Lexington, and we have some information from the boys out at Bluegrass Field who certainly should know weather-wise, and they tell us it'll be go up to about 52 degrees tomorrow, though tonight to reach about 38. So all in all, the weather looks fairly pleasant from here, and we think we have some music which fits into that category also pleasant. For instance, here is the Buddy Morrow Orchestra now and Sleepy Time Gal. Ladies and gentlemen, here are some more details on our bulletin of a moment ago. The Government Meteorological Bureau has requested the large observatories of the country to keep an astronomical watch on any further disturbances occurring on the planet Mars. Due to the unusual nature of this occurrence, we have arranged an interview with the noted astronomer Professor Pearson, who will give us his views on this event. In a few moments, we will take you to the observatory of the University of Kentucky. We return you until then to the music of Buddy Morrow. We are ready now to take you to the observatory at the university where Carl Phillips, our commentator, will interview Professor Richard Pearson, famous astronomer. We take you now to the University of Kentucky. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Carl Phillips speaking to you from the University of Kentucky Observatory. I am standing in a large, semicircular room, pitch black except for an oblong split in the ceiling. Through this opening, I can see a sprinkling of stars that cast a kind of frosty glow over the intricate mechanism of the huge telescope. The ticking sound you hear 
is the vibration of the clockwork. Professor Pearson stands directly above me on a small platform peering through the giant lens. I ask you to be patient, ladies and gentlemen, during any delay that may arise during our interview. Besides his ceaseless watch of the heavens, Professor Pearson may be interrupted by telephone or other communications. During this period, he is in constant touch with the astronomical centers of the world. Professor, may I begin our question? At any time, Mr. Phillips. Uh, Professor, would you please tell our radio audience exactly what you see as you observe the planet Mars through your telescope? Nothing unusual at the moment, Mr. Phillips. A red disk swimming in a blue sea, transverse stripes across the disk. Quite distinct now, because Mars happens to be at a point nearest the Earth, in opposition, as we call it. Well, in your opinion, Professor Pearson, what do these transverse stripes signify? <laughs> Not canals, I can assure you, Mr. Phillips. Although that's the popular conjecture of those who imagine Mars to be inhabited, from a scientific viewpoint, the stripes are merely the result of atmospheric conditions peculiar to the planet. Then you're quite convinced as a scientist that living intelligence as we know it does not exist on Mars. Oh, I should say the chances against it are a thousand to one. Oh, and yet how do you account for these gas eruptions on the surface of the planet at regular intervals? Mr. Phillips, I cannot account for it. By the way, Professor, for the benefit of our listeners, how far is Mars from the Earth? Approximately 40 million miles. Oh, that seems a safe enough distance. Just a moment, ladies and gentlemen. Someone has just handed Professor Pearson a message. While he reads it, let me remind you that we are speaking to you from the observatory at the University of Kentucky in Lexington, where we are interviewing the world-famous astronomer, Professor Pearson. One moment, please. Professor Pearson has passed me a message which he has just received. Professor, may I read the message to the listening audience? Certainly, Mr. Phillips. Ladies and gentlemen, I shall read you a wire addressed to Professor Pearson from Dr. Gray of the University of Louisville Museum of History. 9.16 p.m. Central Standard Time. Seismograph registered shock of almost earthquake intensity occurring within a radius of 20 miles of Lexington. Please investigate. Signed, Lloyd Gray, Chief of Astronomical Division. Professor Pearson, could this occurrence possibly have something to do with the disturbances observed on the planet Mars? Oh, hardly, Mr. Phillips. This is probably a meteorite of unusual size, and its arrival at this particular time is merely a coincidence. However, we shall conduct a search as soon as daylight permits. Thank you, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, for the past ten minutes, we've been speaking to you from the observatory at the University of Kentucky, bringing you a special interview with Professor Pearson, noted astronomer. This is Carl Phillips speaking. We now return you to our studios. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the latest bulletin from the Associated Press. Toronto, Canada. Professor Morse of Macmillan University reports observing a total of three explosions on the planet Mars between the hours of 7.46 p.m. and 9.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This confirms earlier reports received from American observatories. And now, nearer home, comes a special announcement from Frankfort, Kentucky. It is reported that at 8.50 p.m., a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Schweitzer, Kentucky, four miles northeast of Frankfort. The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of several hundred miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Covington. We have dispatched our mobile helicopter unit to the scene, and will have our commentator, Mr. Phillips, 
give you a word description as soon as he can reach there from Lexington. In the meantime, we will continue with our program of dance music. We now take you to Schweitzer, Kentucky. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Carl Phillips again at the Wilmoth Farm, Schweitzer, Kentucky. Professor Pearson and myself made the 15 miles from Lexington in 11 minutes. Well, I, I hardly know where to begin to paint to you a word picture of this strange scene before my eyes. Like something out of a modern Arabian Nights. Well, I just got here, and I haven't had a chance to look around yet. I guess that's it. Say, yes, I guess that's the thing. Whatever you call it, directly in front of me. Half buried in a vast pit. Must have struck with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters of a tree. It must have struck on its way down. What I can see of the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor. It, at least not the meteors I've seen. It, well, it looks more like a huge cylinder. It has the diameter of a... Well, what would you say, Professor Pearson? Well, about 30 yards. About 30 yards. The metal on the sheath is... Well, I've never seen anything like it. The color is sort of yellowish-white. Curious spectators now are pressing close to the object in spite of the efforts of the police to keep them back. They're getting in front of my line of vision. Say, would you mind standing on one side, please? Would you mind standing on one side, please? One side there, one side, please. While the policemen are pushing the crowd back, here's Mr. Wilmot, owner of the farm here. He may have some interesting facts to add. Now, Mr. Wilmot, would you please tell the radio audience as much as you remember of this rather unusual visitor that dropped in your backyard? Uh, step a little closer, please, to the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Wilman. I was listening to the radio. Uh, a little closer and, and louder. Please. Pardon me, pardon me. Louder, please, and closer. Uh, yes, sir. Well, while I was listening to the radio and kind of drowsing, that professor fellow was talking about Mars, so I was half dozing. Yes, Mr. Wilman. Then what happened? As I was saying, I was listening to the radio kind of yes, halfway. Yes, Mr. Wilman. And then you saw something? Not first off. I heard something. And what did you hear? A uh, sound like this. And then what? Well, I turned my head out the window and would have swore I was asleep and dreaming. Yes? I seen a kind of grainish streak, and then zingo, something smacked the ground. Knocked me clear out of my chair. Well, were you frightened, Mr. Mr. Wilmot? Well, I ain't quite sure. I reckon I was kind of riled. Now, thank you, Mr. Wilmot. Thank you very much. Want me to tell you some more? No, that's quite all right. That's plenty. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you have just heard Mr. Wilmoth, owner of the farm where this thing has fallen. I wish I could convey the atmosphere, the background of this fantastic scene. Hundreds of cars are parked in a field in us. Police are trying to rope off the roadway leading into the farm. But it's no use. They're breaking right through. Their headlights throw an enormous spot on the pit where the object's half buried. Some of the more daring souls are venturing near the edge. Their silhouettes stand out against a metal sheen. One man wants to touch the thing. He's having an argument with the policeman. 
Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's something I haven't mentioned in all the excitement, but it's becoming more distinct. Perhaps you've caught it already on your radio. Listen. Do you hear it? It's a curious humming sound that seems to come from inside the object. Here, I'll move the microphone nearer. There. Now we're not more than 25 feet away. Can you hear it now? Oh, Professor Pearson. Uh, yes, Mr. Phillips. Can you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise inside the Possibly thing? the unequal cooling of its surface. Do you still think it's a meteor, Professor? <laughs> I don't know what to think. The metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial, not found on this Earth. Friction with the Earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. This thing is smooth and, as you can see, of cylindrical shape. Just a minute. Something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. This end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw. The thing must be hollow. out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now it's another one. And another. They look like tentacles to me. There, I can see the thing's body. Why, it's it's large as a bear, and it glistens like wet leather. But that face, it's indescribable, ladies and gentlemen. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. The eyes are black and gleam like a serpent. The mouth, it's V-shaped, with saliva dripping from its rimless lips that seem to quiver and pulsate. The monster, or whatever it is, can hardly move. Why, it seems weighed down by possible gravity or something. The thing's raising up the crowd. The crowd's falling back. They've seen enough. This is the most extraordinary experience of I can't find words. I'm, I'm going to have to pull this microphone with me as I talk. I'll have to stop the description until I've taken a new position. Now, hold on, please, ladies and gentlemen. I'll be back in just a minute. We are bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening at the Wilmoth Farm, Schweitzer, Kentucky. We now return you to Carl Phillips at Schweitzer. Ladies and gentlemen, am I on? Uh, ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilmoth's garden. From here I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk, as long as I can see. More state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit, about 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain is conferring with someone. Uh, we can't quite see who. Oh, oh yes, I believe it. It's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, now they're parting. The professor moves around one side, studying the object, while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. Uh, I can see it now. It's, it's a white handkerchief tied to a pole, a flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, what anything means, 
Wait, something's happening. A hump shape out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against the mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from that mirror, and it leaps right at the advancing men. It's striking them on head-on. Boy, they're turning into flames. Now the whole field's caught on fire. The woods, the barns, the gas tanks of automobiles. It's spreading everywhere. It's coming this way, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Schweitzer. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity. In the meantime, we have a late bulletin from San Diego, California. Dr. Werner von Braun, speaking at a dinner of the California Astronomical Society, expressed the opinion that the explosions on Mars are undoubtedly nothing more than severe volcanic disturbances on the surface of the planet. We continue now with the piano interlude. Ladies and gentlemen, I've just been handed a message that came in from Schweitzer by telephone. Just a moment, please. At least 40 people, including six state troopers, are dead in a field east of the village of Schweitzer. Their bodies were burned and distorted beyond all possible recognition. The next voice you hear will be that of Brigadier General Adrian Taylor, commander of the Kentucky National Guard. I've been requested by the governor of Kentucky to place the counties of Fayette, Franklin, Woodford, Scott, and Madison under martial law. No one will be permitted to enter this area except by special pass issued by state or military authorities. Four National Guard companies are proceeding from Lexington to Schweitzer and will aid in the evacuation of homes within the range of military operations. Thank you. You've just been listening to General Adrian Taylor, commander of the Kentucky National Guard at Lexington. In the meantime, further details of the catastrophe at Schweitzer are coming in. The strange creatures, after unleashing their deadly assault, crawled back in their pit and made no attempt to prevent the efforts of the firemen to recover the bodies and extinguish the fire. Combined fire departments of Frankfort and Fayette County are fighting the flames, which menace Franklin County. We've been unable to establish any contact with our mobile unit at Schweitzer, but we hope to be able to return you there at the earliest possible moment. In the meantime, we take you... Just just a moment, please. Professor Pierce. Oh, thank you. La ladies and gentlemen, I've just been informed that we've finally established communication with our an eyewitness of the tragedy. Professor Pearson has been located at a farmhouse near Schweitzer, where he's established an emergency observation post. As a scientist, He'll give you his explanation of the calamity. The next voice you hear will be that of Professor Pearson. Of the creatures in the rocket cylinder at Schweitzer, I can give you no authoritative information, either as to their nature, their origin, or their purposes here on Earth. 
Of their destructive weapon, I might venture some conjectural explanation. For want of a better term, I shall refer to the mysterious weapon as a heat ray. It's all too evident that these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance of our own. It's my guess that in some way they are able to generate an intense heat in a chamber of practically absolute non-conductivity. This intense heat they project in a parallel beam against any object they choose by means of a polished uh, parabolic mirror of unknown composition, much as the mirror of a lighthouse projects a beam of light. This is my conjecture of the origin of the heat ray. Thank you, Professor Pearson. Ladies and gentlemen, here is a bulletin from Frankfurt. It is a brief statement informing us that the charred body of Carl Phillips has been identified in a Frankfurt hospital. And now here's another bulletin from Washington, D.C., Office of the Director of the National Red Cross reports 10 units of Red Cross emergency workers have been assigned to the headquarters of the National Guard stationed outside Schweitzer, Kentucky. Just a moment. Thank you. Here's a bulletin from State Police Headquarters in Frankfurt. The fires at Schweitzer and vicinity are now under control. Scouts report all quiet in the pit and no sign of life appearing from the mouth of the cylinder. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special announcement from Mr. Harry McDonald, General Manager of Station WRWL. We have received a request from the National Guard to place at their disposal our entire broadcasting facilities. In view of the gravity of the situation and believing that radio has a definite responsibility to serve in the public interest at all times, we are turning over our facilities to the Kentucky National Guard at Lexington. This is Captain Lansing of the Signal Corps attached to the National Guard now engaged in military operations in the vicinity of Schweitzer, Kentucky. Situation arising from the reported presence of certain individuals of unidentified nature is now under complete control. The cylindrical object, which lies in a pit directly below our position, is surrounded on all sides by three battalions of infantry, without heavy field pieces, but we believe adequately armed with rifles and machine guns. All cause for alarm, if such cause ever existed, is now entirely unjustified. The things, whatever they are, do not even venture to poke their heads above the pit. I can see their hiding place plainly in the glare of the searchlights here. With all the reported resources, these creatures can scarcely stand up against heavy machine gun fire. Anyway, it's an interesting outing for the troops. I can make out their khaki uniforms crossing back and forth in front of the lights. It uh, looks almost like a real war here. There appears to be some slight smoke in the woods bordering the Kentucky River. Probably a fire started by campers. Well, we ought to see some action soon. One of the companies is deploying on the left flank. A quick thrust and it will all be over. Now, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. I see something on top of the cylinder. No, no, wait a minute. No, it's nothing but a shadow. Now the troops are on the edge of the Wilmoth Farm. 7,000 armed men closing in on an old metal tube. Wait a minute, wait a minute, that wasn't a shadow. It, it's something moving, solid metal, kind of a shield-like affair, rising up out of the cylinder. It's going higher and, and higher. What, why, it's standing on legs, actually rearing up on a sort of a metal framework. Now it's reaching above the trees, and the searchlights are on it. Hold it, just a minute. Hold it, please.
Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observation of science and the evidence of our own eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Kentucky farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. The battle which took place tonight at Schweitzer has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by an army in modern times. 7,000 men armed with rifles and machine guns pitted against a single fighting machine of the invaders from Mars. 120 known survivors. The rest strewn over the battle area from Schweitzer to Peaks Mill, crushed and trampled to death under the metal feet of the monster, or burned to cinders by its heat ray. The monster is now in control of central Kentucky and has effectively cut the state through its center. Communication lines are down from Louisville to Lexington, railroad tracks are torn and service from Lexington to Frankfort discontinued except routing some of the trains through Danville. Highways to the north, south, and west are clogged with frantic human traffic. Police and army reserves are unable to control the mad flight. By morning, the fugitives will have swelled Lexington, Shelbyville, and Georgetown, it is estimated, to twice their normal population. At this time, martial law prevails throughout central Kentucky. We take you now to Frankfurt for a special broadcast on the emergency. Ladies and gentlemen, the Attorney General. Citizens of Kentucky, I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts our Commonwealth, nor the concern of your state government in protecting the lives and property of its people. However, I wish to impress upon you, private citizens and public officials, all of you, the urgent need of calm and resourceful action. Fortunately, this formidable enemy is still confined to a comparatively small area, and we may place our faith in the military forces to keep them there. In the meantime, placing our faith in God, we must continue the performance of our duties, each and every one of us, so that we may confront this destructive adversary with a commonwealth united, courageous, and consecrated to the preservation of human supremacy on this earth. I thank you. You've just heard the Attorney General speaking from Frankfurt. Bulletins too numerous to read are piling up in the studio here. We're informed that the central portion of Kentucky is blacked out from radio communication due to the effect of the heat ray upon power lines and electrical equipment. Here, here's a special bulletin from Louisville. Cables received from English, French, German scientific bodies, as well as our own federal government offering assistance. Astronomers report continued gas outbursts at regular intervals on planet Mars. Majority voice opinion that the enemy will be reinforced by additional rocket machines. Attempts have been made to locate Professor Pearson, who has observed Martians at close range. It's feared he was lost in recent battle. Bulletin, Stanford Field, Louisville. Observation planes report three Martian machines visible above treetops moving east towards Versailles with population fleeing ahead of them. Heat ray not in use, although advancing at express train speeds, invaders pick their way carefully. They seem to be making conscious effort to avoid destruction of cities and countryside. However, 
They stop to uproot power lines, bridges, and railroad tracks. Their apparent objective is to crush resistance, to paralyze communication, and disorganize human society. A bulletin from Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Two farmers have stumbled on a second cylinder similar to the first embedded in a wooded area 20 miles south of Frankfurt. U.S. Army field pieces are proceeding from Fort Knox to blow up second invading unit before cylinder can be opened and the fighting machine rigged. Another bulletin from Stanford Field, Louisville. Observation planes report enemy machines, now three in number, increasing speed northward, kicking over houses and trees in their evident haste to form a conjunction with their allies south of Frankfurt. Machines also sighted by telephone operator east of Louisville. Here's a bulletin from... Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Dayton. A squadron of Boeing B-47 jet bombers carrying heavy explosives flying south in pursuit of enemy. Army L-19s from Fort Campbell acting as guides. They keep speeding enemy in sight. Just, just a moment, please. Ladies and gentlemen, we've run special wires to the artillery line in adjacent towns to give you direct reports in the zone of the advancing enemy. First, we take you to the battery of the 441st Field Artillery, located at the wooded area near Lawrenceburg.
streets are all jammed. The crowd noise you hear gives one a feeling of a giant New Year's Eve spent in New York City. Wait a minute. The enemy is now in sight at the corner of Main and Spring Street. Five great machines. The first one is crossing Broadway. I can see it from here, stepping over cars like a man stepping over rocks in a stream. A bulletin handed me. Martian cylinders are falling all over the state. One outside Winchester, one in Paducah, Bowling Green. They seem to be timed in space. Now oh, the first machine reaches the first national bank on Main Street. He stands watching, looking over the city. His steel cowlish head is even with the building. He waits for the others. They rise like a line of new towers on the city's west end. Now they're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. Smoke comes out. Black smoke drifting over the city. The people in the streets see it now. They're running towards the viaduct. Hundreds of them. Oh, God. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached the Phoenix. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They're falling like flies. Now the smoke's in front of the Strand. Now it's 100 yards away. It's 50 feet, 20 feet, 10, 5. have just heard Invasion from Mars, an adaptation of the H.G. Wells classic War of the Worlds, directed by Fred Gooding. Featured in the cast were Wayne Gregory, Reynolds Large, Nick Clooney, Charles Dickens, and Stuart Halleck. Technical director was Tom Jordan. Technical supervisor, Ron Stewart. This has been a Gooding production. Well, there it is, ladies and gentlemen. We hope you enjoyed our show this evening, our radio play, Martian Invasion of Central Kentucky, written and produced and directed by Fred Gooding, our good friend here in Frankfurt. And we hope you'll tune in again later on tonight at 9 o'clock when it'll be extra spooky. You can listen on 1490 AM or you can stream it at PassportRadio1490.com.